Get your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. We'll be continuing our study of when the church was a family this morning, and for the next uh, few weeks, we'll just continue the study. And I want to encourage you, in the same way that the, our great, the, the great Apostle Paul encouraged some folks, he talked to these people called the Bereans. And who can tell me, what did he say, how did he describe the Bereans? They were what? They were noble. They were noble. And why did he describe them as being noble? Because they did what? They searched the scriptures to see actually if what Paul was preaching or teaching was true. Now, this is the Apostle Paul, and I would assume if there's anyone you could trust, it'd probably be this guy, right? The Apostle Paul, one of the pillars of the church. But Paul isn't uh, embarrassed, he's not shocked, he's not concerned. He actually encourages the Bereans to search the scriptures to see if what he is preaching is true. And so I want to encourage you to do the exact same thing. As we study and read this book and then uh, examine it with the scriptures, uh, we're, not, we're not afraid. We're encouraged when you are saying, wait a minute, I don't get this part and I'm not sure about this part. Your job is to do exactly what Paul said the Bereans were to do, and that is to search the scriptures to see if these things are true. Okay? So it's a great exercise for us in discernment, all right? It's a good thing. All right. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 through 19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your scripture this morning. We thank you for your living word, Jesus Christ, who came, born of a virgin, came and lived incarnate in in the flesh among us. Lord, he kept the law perfectly in every way and was that spotless and lamb without any blemish. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you for your, your written word, Lord, these Bibles that are open in our laps right now, thank you for communicating to us. And we pray this morning that you will speak to us, dear Father. Speak to us through your word. Teach us this morning. Father, I pray that if there are any in the congregation who do not know you, that you would open their hearts, that you would, you would take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that they may hear and understand your word, and they may be refreshed and encouraged to know your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior. Help me this morning as I communicate these words to these people, Father. Help me to, to, to not be concerned about what they think about me, but instead what you think about me. Help me to speak clearly, to speak uh, truly about your Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit and yourself, Father. Lord, I pray that your, my, my, cry to, my, my pride again would be, would be crushed and that, that I would submit to you f- fully, Lord God. Help us today, Lord, and we pray that you would encourage us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is a metaphor? What is a metaphor? 
Uh, this week, as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking about the idea of metaphor because that's all through, that's really what this book, what, When the Church Was a Family, is about. It's about a metaphor. And so I want to make sure that I had the right idea of what a metaphor was. I had some ideas, but I want to make sure that I actually had the right ideas about what a metaphor was. So I called my right-hand uh, Vice Principal Penny Ross, okay, who's the Vice Principal of Hope Academy. She is the boots on the ground okay, for Hope Academy. And she is also the queen of grammar. All right. And so I called Penny and asked her, Penny, can you tell me what is a metaphor? And she emailed back to me from Basic English Revisited. A metaphor is comparing two things without using the words of comparison like or as. Say, okay, I I, I, kind of got that. And then she added in an email, she said, a metaphor is used to express an unfamiliar concept or idea in terms of something familiar to the reader or listener. And she said, allegories and parables are also types of metaphors. So I, I thought about that for a minute. Okay, using an unfamiliar concept uh, or idea in terms of something familiar. So trying to, trying to get understanding there. I thought about it for a while and I emailed back to her, you are a lifesaver on the stormy sea of sermon preparation. <laughs> I, I was getting closer to understanding a metaphor. From dictionary.com, I I continued searching, and and there it said, a metaphor is a figure of speech in which a term or phrase is applied to something to which it is not literally applicable in order to suggest a resemblance. As in, and they had this, a mighty fortress is our God. I was pretty impressed that dictionary.com had that as an example of a metaphor. A mighty fortress is our God. Now, To understand this metaphor, first of all, we know God, but we have to understand what a fortress is, don't we? If we don't know what a fortress is, then the metaphor would completely fall apart. But God is a mighty fortress. He is strong, unchanging, immutable. He's our protection. God is a mighty fortress. So to understand this metaphor, we have to have an awareness or understanding of the object's in the metaphor. Growing up in my family, I've, I've said before probably to you that my dad was, is quite the, the joker and teaser, and my dad had a lot of little, his little shtick, right? His little, his little family jokes and things that he would do. And one of them that I grew up with uh, was that anytime you accidentally bumped into my dad or he bumped into you accidentally somehow, he would always say the same thing. He would say, he would bump into you and then say, oh, pardon me. I thought you were a water buffalo. Okay, now, I heard that as a little boy, as a toddler. I can't remember the first time I heard it, but in my entire life, all the way, you know, five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, I just, that's, that's every time that my dad bumped at me while we were working, mowing the lawn, whatever, that's what he always said. Pardon me, I thought you were a water buffalo. Okay, I thought it was hilarious. I heard it. Well, fast forward to me being in college, right? I am in the library with a stack of books and my best friend and the, 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 the elevator door opens as I'm coming out of this elevator and a woman is standing next to me and I didn't see her and I bumped into her and I said, pardon me, I thought you were a water buffalo. Now, she looked at me with horror, right? <gasps> well, I, right? My friend looked at me as well. What? And, and she walked on I walked, and I said, I don't, I don't understand. He said, I can't believe you said that. Clearly, 
I didn't understand the metaphor. I didn't under- He had to explain to me what it meant. And at that, I had dawning revelation. I thought, oh, I can't believe I said that. I told my dad later, and he was shocked. What did you think I was saying all those years? I said, I just thought it was funny, right? It's just funny. All through the New Testament, all through the New Testament, the New Testament writers use metaphors. And for, for us to get these metaphors, there has to be some understanding for us to appreciate the metaphors. Let me give you some metaphors for the church that are throughout the New Testament. Uh, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is branches on a vine, an olive tree, a field of crops, a building, a harvest, a new temple, a new group of priests, God's house, the body of Christ. But in this study, we're concerned with one metaphor, and that is the metaphor that the church is a family. The church is a family. On page 41 of of our book, Hellerman says this, when the church was a family is not a book about our natural okay, or biological families. It is about the family of God. Our examination of Mediterranean family systems is not intended as a blueprint for natural family relationships. The point of our analysis is to ascertain how the metaphor of the church as a family, especially the image of surrogate siblings or brothers and sisters, would have informed social relations in the New Testament church. Okay, this seems simple enough, uh, simple enough to understand, um, this idea that the church is a family. But we must understand that our view of family, as modern Americans, right, our view of family and the view of family at the time of the writing of the New Testament may be vastly different. In America today... A family can be anything from the traditional family, right? Mom, dad, 2.5 kids, a cat and a dog, and a white picket fence, right? To a loose collection of individuals who happen to live under the same roof. Or even Heather and her two mommies. All of these things today in America might be considered family. You see, we are at a chronological disadvantage. Time has separated us from the intense familial bond that was shared by the family in the New Testament. And this bond was shared because of one commonality, blood. Blood. Hellman states on page 35, my intention in this chapter is to demonstrate that for persons in Mediterranean antiquity, marriage took a backseat priority-wise to another more important family relationship, the bond between blood brothers and sisters. Marriages were essentially contractual unions intended to strengthen the larger extended family through alliance building with other clans and the production of offspring. He also says, in Mediterranean antiquity, blood runs deeper than romantic love. He goes on, he says, the blood bond between siblings, brothers and sisters, not between husband and wife, is the most intimate, nurturing, and ultimately satisfying relationship for persons in collectivist cultures. Okay, so Hellerman is attempting to show us that the blood relationship of the natural biological families of the ancient Mediterranean uh, times, this ancient Mediterranean family, it it was intense. It was intense and it was deep. So when the word family is used, so when the word family or, or brother and sister is used in the New Testament for the church, 
then we need to understand the same intense, deep love and devotion there is implied. Now, Americans, uh, we may not have the same devotion and, 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 and love that, that even other cultures may have now. It, it's not just the ancient Mediterranean family who had this collectivist idea or this, this um, strong family bond, okay? Other cultures, even today, have a stronger family, sense of family, right, than, than, than maybe do Americans. My sister, Kelly, uh, who's two years younger than I am, and her husband, Terry, were missionaries in Brazil for 13 years. So they packed up everything, went to Brazil and the, the, the city of Vitoria and started a church there. Now, in Brazil, they uh, experienced what you would know as is culture shock, right? You go from America and you go there. And it's like, wow, this is, this is different. This is not America. This is not where I grew up, okay? They had to learn Portuguese. They had to learn the cultures. They had to learn how to drive, how to park, where to stand. I mean, all sorts of things, right? And uh, my, in fact, my, my brother-in-law, Terry, was telling me, just going to a McDonald's, actually. Going to McDonald's, they would put on their Sunday best, okay? It was a big deal to go to McDonald's. People would dress up to go to McDonald's. And, it, and, it, and it's a counter. He said, when you stood in the counter, he said, with us... At McDonald's, you give about, what, three feet probably, right? You're going to get a little space there. He said, if, if there was anything more than six inches, someone would step in there, right? And he said, when we got there, he's like, hey, man, you're cutting. No, you're not cutting. There's room for me, <laughs> right? They didn't think he was in line. Basically, basically, standing in a line at the bank or at McDonald's was pretty much touching your bodies, right? You're in line now if your body is touching, right? Everybody's all scooting up, okay? Culture shock. This is different, right? Culture shock. Um, now, when my sister, after they established a church, grew it up, and uh, all this business, they came back after 13 years. And I remember one night sitting with my, with my sister, and she was, she was crying after coming back from Brazil because she missed her Brazilian church. She missed her Brazilian sisters. And what she was saying was there was an intensity there was a love and devotion that was so different. Now, see what had happened was she came back and now she was experiencing reverse culture shock, which is worse than culture shock. You see, while she was in Brazil for 13 years, you would think it wasn't, it wasn't that America had changed. It was that my sister had changed. She now was Brazilian. And she came back to a, to a, to a church that, that was just, in her estimation, kind of cold and distant, Right? In Brazil, they're hugging, they're loving, they're kissing. You know, they're, they're just, in, they're just, they just stand closer to you, right? And you come to the American church and people say, good morning, how are you? Good morning, good morning, right? I even heard one man say he chose the denomination that he was in because it was the least likely denomination to be hugged, okay? <laughs> We're Americans, right? So... We can see this. We can see this, right? We get, we're starting to get an understanding here of what we're talking about. But let me ad address an issue here. Let me take a detour and address an issue that many of you are concerned about in chapter 2. And it, it, it has concerned me as well. And here it is, okay? It's the relationship between husbands and wives. The relationship between husbands and wives. Now, I do believe that in this chapter, Hellerman is weak in this area, okay? But, again... Let me restate, it is not Hellerman's intention, as he states in his book, it's not his intention in his book to explain the relationship between 
husbands and wives, okay? But nevertheless, let me address this here. God in His sovereignty, God in His sovereignty has ordained three institutions. Family, government, and church. Family, church, and government. Three institutions. Marriage and family is given to man in the beginning. In the beginning. In the beginning, God creates, right? He creates and He says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And He finally ends up saying, it is not good. Why does He say it is not good? Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Listen to this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Woe Man. All right? I mean, think of it. He just got through naming all the animals. He's looking for a... A helper for him. He sees the dog and says, well, you could be my best friend, right? You could be my best friend. Get it? Uh, but, anybody, but none of them are suitable for him. He wakes up from a deep sleep. He looks and he sees Eve. Oh, my goodness. You got to say, wow, wow, God. You know, I, I'm, he's like, you do good work, right? He's got to say, man, you do good work. Adam says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out. Of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This one flesh relationship is not to be overlooked. It is special and unique among all human relationships. So special, in fact, that marriage itself is used as a metaphor for a profound reality that of Christ and the church. God himself uses marriage as a metaphor also to show the beauty of Christ and his beautiful bride, the church. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So as we think about our wives, gentlemen, we know that Scripture clearly teaches us that our wives are to be treasured. Our wives are to be treasured. Proverbs 31.10 says, An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. As we think about our wives, we, we, you can c- compare them to any earthly treasure, right? Jewels, silver, gold, whatever. But an excellent wife, she's worth more than any earthly treasure, Right? Our wives are a blessing. Our wives are a blessing. Proverbs 31 again, 28 through 30 says, Her children will rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. 
Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Our wives are a blessing. Our wives also are to be loved. They are to be loved and cherished. Ephesians 5, 25 through 31. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But as special as marriage is, as special as marriage is, it is temporal. It is temporal. It is not an eternal relationship. It's not an eternal relationship. Jesus, talking to those who are questioning him in Matthew chapter 22, he says to them, You are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in resurrection, they neither marry, nor as people in, in the resurrection, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. You see, my relationship with Linda as my wife is temporal. It is for this world. But my relationship to her as my sister in Christ is eternal. It will extend throughout heaven. All the more reason to marry well. All the more reason to marry well. So when we marry, we are not to be married to unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness we are to be equally yoked not unequally yoked proverbs 18:22 says this he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the lord a wife is a good thing and it's favor from the lord but even more the wife who loves god God himself says, a wife just in herself, a wife is a good thing, period. It's a good thing to have a wife. We need our wives. But even more, one who fears God, right? Proverbs 31, 28 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Think about our culture today and the emphasis placed on charm or beauty, the exterior qualities of a woman, you can't go to the grocery store, can you, without standing in line and seeing the latest whatever, right? The latest diet, the latest whatever, the latest this, the la- right? It's all about the exterior. It's all about what she looks like on the outside. We're, we're, it's just a barrage of, ongoing about how a woman should look, right? But here in this Proverbs, it says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord... It's like he's saying, really, that a woman who fears the Lord, now that's a beautiful woman, right? The woman who fears the Lord, she's a beautiful woman. You see, I am am doubly blessed. I am doubly blessed. My wife is my sister in Christ. My wife is my sister in Christ. She's my support, my comfort, my helper. She loves me and submits to me both as husband and... And as her Christian brother, 
And so as Christian husband and wife and Christian brother and sister, we share the most important bond, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. That is what unites us. All right. Back to the metaphor of the ancient Mediterranean family. Hellerman says this then. Quote, he says, our, ins- our excursion into the realm of cultural anthropology and kinship analysis has not been an end in itself. We have sought to make sense of ancient family systems in order to understand what the early Christians meant when they used family language to encourage healthy relationships in their churches. I trust that you are beginning to see why we cannot simply import our American idea of what it means to be a brother or sister into our interpretation of the New Testament. Okay, are you hearing that? What he's saying is we can't simply import our American idea, right, how we see brothers and sisters, very loose, right? And and, and I know that that that's a generalization. Some of you may be super close to your brothers and sisters. But as a rule, right, this same intensity that was shared then or shared in some other cultures is not shared here, okay? He says... We can't just simply import our idea of what it means to be brother or sister into our interpretation of the New Testament. Brother meant immeasurably more to the strong group authors of the Bible than the word means to you and me. It was their most important family relationship. So what is it that binds them together as a loyal, loving, intense family unit? What is it that binds them together? It is blood. So the natural family, the natural family is bound together by the blood. What is it that binds together the supernatural family? The supernatural family of God, it is blood. The blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we turn to our passage, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Brothers and sisters, we need rescuing. We need rescuing. When I was a young man growing up, in a Christian home, we would often go in my church to, we called them back then, youth rallies, right? Youth gatherings. And you'd have all these kids together and we'd sing songs and someone would preach to us and they'd have an altar call. They'd have an invitation to accept Christ. And, and often the guy would say something to the effect of, you use an illustration of, it's like you're out on a stormy sea, right? You're on a stormy sea and imagine kids, if you fell off the yacht and you're out there floating, you're treading water out there in the ocean, What's going to happen to you? How, you? You need to be helped. You need rescuing. You need, you need to be saved, right? And uh, as you tread water, then a boat comes by. And who's in the boat? God, right? God's in the boat. And he's going to cast you a lifesaver, but you've got to grab it. You've got to grab the lifesaver. Come on now, kids, grab the lifesaver. Come to Jesus, right? It's a great story and a wonderful illustration. The only problem with that is it's just not biblical. The Bible doesn't teach us that our rescuing is just simply Uh, that we're out there treading water. No. The biblical illustration is that we are actually under the water. We're on the bottom of the ocean and we're dead. You see, we need rescuing. The reason, the reason we need rescuing, 1 Peter 1, 18 tells us, is the feudal ways inherited 
from your forefathers, from our forefathers. You see, we have inherited from our father Adam. We've inherited sin. Sin. We're born into sin. And we are sinners. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us that actually we're, we're, we're even children of wrath. Children of wrath. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you... Now remember, Paul here is talking to the church in Ephesus. He's talking to redeemed people. He's talking to Christians. And he says, and you, okay? And even, even Paul could be standing here today and, and say, Hope Chapel, you. Okay, let's not forget that. Let's not distance ourselves and say, well, he's talking to those bad people, not to me because I'm good people, right? <laughs> he says, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children <clears throat> of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see that, that desperate condition that we were in? We were dead. We were dead. And, and, and even though we were dead, it's interesting, we're dead, but we're walking. It's almost like a picture of a, of a zombie, right? A vampire, captive to their own passions. That's the whole idea of a vampire. He's not free. He's captive to his own passions. He's the living dead. So we were dead, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Satan, okay? Yes, that's who we were. We were carrying out the passions of our flesh, our desires, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see that condition. We were children of wrath. And so we needed salvation. We needed rescuing. More than that, we needed resurrection. And that's where we come to the ransom. The ransom. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 again. Knowing, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The Greek word translated here, precious, means valuable, costly, esteemed, beloved, honorable. It means most precious. Brothers and sisters, we have been ransomed, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In Acts chapter 20 and 28, there the writer is encouraging the elders and he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Now, that brings us to the righteousness. The righteousness, you see... No other ransom would do. No other ransom would do. 1 Peter 1.19 tells us that this ransom was the precious blood of Christ. And what was, that, what was that blood like? What was Christ like? Like a lamb without blemish or spot. Like a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, Jesus is unlike any other man. He's unlike any other person. He is the God-man. He is the Christ. He is our perfect Lamb of God, unsinned, unsinful, not, not, not sinning, not, not transgressing, right? 
You see, Christ was not a martyr. A martyr is, a, is someone who's a good man who gives himself for a good cause or a good man maybe might, might lay in his life for, for other good people. But Christ was not simply a martyr. Christ is not a martyr. He is our Savior. He is our Savior. In Big, up in Big Bear a few years ago, I heard on the radio that a young uh, boy had went out onto the frozen lake. The, the, it was during the winter and the, the lake up there had frozen over. And this uh, young boy, being disobedient to his parents, runs out onto the ice of this frozen lake. And as he ran out onto the ice of the frozen lake, the ice collapsed. As he got out toward the, to the center there, the ice collapsed and he fell through. His uncle saw him and his uncle went out to rescue him. He goes after him. And of course, as he gets out there, his weight also cracks the ice and the uncle falls through. And both the boy and his uncle drowned in that frozen lake. You see... That uncle died for a sinner. He died for a sinner. But only Christ can die for our sins. There's a big difference. Someone can die for a sinner. But only Christ can die for our sins. Dr. Lloyd-Jones says this. All the solutions of the world are insufficient to get rid of the stain of my sins. But here is the blood of the Son of God, spotless, blameless, and I feel that it is powerful. We just sang a little bit ago, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. And Charles Wesley has said this, His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood can make the foulest clean. In Hayden's translation, it would be the yuckiest, right? The yuckiest. We have to see our sin in that, in that way, even in that childish way. Yucky, disgusting, gross, my sin. And Wesley says that Christ's blood can even make that clean. What can wash away my sin? We used to sing this song growing up. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 5 and 9, they sing a new song saying this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is the family of God, a family, a family from every tribe, language, people, and nation. In a couple of weeks, many of your shepherds, many of your uh, pastors and elders and growth group leaders will be attending a shepherd's conference at Grace Community Church. I've been going there for, for quite a few years, and it is an amazing conference. Pastors and shepherds, elders from all over the world will gather at this conference, 3,000 men, 3,000 men from 40 different countries. It's like being at the UN, all right? And they're sitting even in the conference. As the preaching is going out and the teaching is going out, you see all these men with headphones on, right? And there's simultaneous translation happening in Russian, in Spanish, in Chinese. And it's amazing. I remember there one year, I, I, I met some brothers from the Philippines. I looked over and I saw these gentlemen standing. And they, it was probably 70 degrees that day. A beautiful, you know, Southern California day. Probably 70 and here's some guys staying in those big puffy coats. 
that you wear like in the Arctic, right? <laughs> big puffy coats, big knit hats pulled down over their ears, and gloves. Okay, standing here like this. <laughs> and I, I go, hi, I'm in my Hawaiian shirt and my khakis, right? How you doing? <laughs> Where are you guys from? You know, we are pastors, right? We're pastors from the Philippines. You know, they're just like, oh, it's so, it's, fr- we're freezing. I'm like, what? And he says, the guy, and the guy says, we don't usually wear shoes. <laughs> I mean, culture, culturally, completely different. Geographically, completely different. Nothing humanly possibly in common. But no, these are my brothers, fellow pastors in Christ, sharing the most important thing, the blood of our son, Jesus Christ. Look around you. Look at this congregation. Many of us, if we just bumped into each other on the street, we would not possibly even be friends. But you see, because of the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we share the most important thing in common, and we are brothers and sisters. Twice we have had speakers coming here for our conferences, and two different times, gentlemen have pulled me aside and said to me, our our guest speakers have, have said, this is a... This is a very diverse group you have here, right? It's a very diverse. How do you guys do that? I don't know. God, right? God does it. God does it. We are brothers and sisters bound by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters. We are the family of God. We are the family of God because of the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that you have seen fit to Rescue us, even more than that, to resurrect us, to bring us back from the dead through the sacrifice of your beloved Son, Jesus, and through his blood shed for us on the cross. And because of that, we can truly proclaim that we are brothers and sisters. We are in the family of God. You now are truly our Father. You've taken us from being children of wrath to being children of a beloved Father. Lord, there are some in the congregation hearing my voice that may not belong to this family. They have yet to repent of their sins. Father, I pray that you'd be kind to them now and that they would turn their hearts toward you and, and, and know you as their Father. Know you, Jesus, as their Savior. Cry out to you for forgiveness. We love you today, Lord. We pray that you'll help us as a family to live like it. Lord, help us. Reconcile us. Bring peace Strengthen us. Help us to do your will, Lord, as your family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.